I'm also uh, chairman of the IGDA Foundation. Um, so uh, I kind of, uh, my, my story started when I was about 13 years old and I played a game called Creatures. Uh, so I, I've been a gamer for a, a long time. Uh, my mom was a programmer, my dad was an IT manager. Um, so computers and games have been something that have been around me since before I could talk. Um, but at about 13 years old, I played this game called Creatures. And Creatures was kind of like uh, a Tamagotchi on steroids. Uh, so you had these little furry things on a side-on view world, and you could teach them, you could breed them, uh, you could kind of um, interact with them and kind of help them move around the world. But one of the things that was great about this game is that it was actually created by a spin-out from the University of Cambridge in England. Um, and it was, uh, it claimed to be artificial life. And what they really meant by that was that all the techniques that were backing it were actually artificially intelligent. So it was uh, very heavily driven by neural networks and genetic algorithms. And this was probably, uh, so if I was uh, 13, this would have been kind of mid nineties, that kind of time. Uh, so long before neural networks was something that you were kind of seeing in, in news media, the way that we are today. Um, 13 years old, I thought this was the coolest thing ever. And uh, I started uh, kind of trying to learn more about AI in a way that only a precocious teenager can kind of with these kind of scientific papers and sat there going, oh, yes, yes, I've been reading this paper. And it's like, I, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. But one of the great things uh, was that um, the I was living in Scotland at the time. Uh, and the University of Edinburgh uh, was about two hours away. And uh, I got accepted into their undergrad program, which was uh, joint honors in AI. Well, I started in AI and math. Uh, and it turns out that um, being good at math at high school does not translate into being good at math at university. And that went horribly wrong for me. Uh, so I swapped into AI and computer science. Um, had to take a, a do over year as a result. But uh, let's not talk about that. Um, so kind of went through undergrad masters uh, and a research masters in in very kind of theoretical AI systems. Uh, and then for my PhD, I came back to more of a games focus. And uh, I ended up working in a, a great research team at the University of Strathclyde uh, up in Glasgow uh, in Scotland. And one of the great things about games from a kind of academic-ish point of view is that they provide this amazing kind of simulation sandbox where you can actually explore AI techniques in a, in a really controlled environment. Um, so that was kind of partly the justification and the, uh, the other half of the justification is obviously yay games. Um, but that kind of led to a, a PhD that, uh, that took me far too long to complete. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that I uh, started winning uh, the IGDA scholarships to attend various games industry events. Uh, so in 2011, I attended E3, so that would have been seven years ago this week. Um, and uh, the IGDA kind of created this uh, phenomenal experience of kind of, you know, me as a, as a PhD student from Glasgow never really having... Um, had much exposure to the games industry except through uh, some of the online communities that I was part of and, and visiting to a couple of studios in the UK, kind of getting into this um, environment of E3 where the IGDA is kind of presenting a, a huge opportunity for you to meet and greet and kind of interact with kind of movers and shakers was phenomenal. 
Uh, I went on to, to win that award to attend GDC as the Eric Dibson Memorial AI Scholar. Um, and then on to Casual Connect later in 2012, uh, at which point, um, I think for, for a number of reasons, but partially so that I would never win one of these scholarships ever again, uh, they asked me if I would uh, help organize the, the, the scholarship program. So I got kind of involved in that. You know, the, the, the IGDA scholarships, uh, we continue to run them now through the foundation rather than through the main IGDA. Um, for me, that was such a, being able to, to go to these events as an IGDA scholar was such a transformative experience that I felt that I'd got kind of this life debt effectively to, um, to the organization. And as a result of that, I kind of um, got involved with the local chapter in Scotland and ended up leading that chapter got involved with the, the uh, scholarships committee and ended up leading uh, the scholarships committee. Uh, and from there, uh, kind of started interacting with the more international audience that the IGDA brings together. Um, became uh, the first person outside of North America to join the IGDA's board of directors, the actual kind of global organization board of directors uh, in 2013. Uh, and um, from there transitioned across uh, and uh, started leading the foundation uh, in 2014. In parallel with that, I was kind of setting up uh, a small studio to do a lot of work for hire in the, in the AI space. Uh, so we worked on a game called Redshirt that's available on Steam. Uh, we worked on a game called, uh, oh God, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of this game. It's just gone out of my head completely. We, we worked on it in uh, 2014 and it released on Vita uh, like uh, three or four months ago. And I cannot remember the name of the game. That's really bad. Um, so the, the point being that like one of the things that I think is the, the insight for me at least is that like most studios, particularly indie studios, don't have the resources to keep, you know, an AI PhD kicking around to do cool shit. Uh, but at the same time, like that doesn't mean that they can't have some amazing AI in their games. But there's not that many people offering that as like a work for hire or contract service. So uh, that was kind of the niche that I was trying to fill. Um, but this was all in parallel with my my research. Uh, I really was just done with my research. I hated what I was working on. Uh, it was kind of six or seven years into eh, probably probably six. Um, and I was ready to move on, but of course you can't move on from your PhD without kind of finishing it up, writing it up, uh, running all the experiments, kind of creating this, this complete thing and delivering that. Uh, and I really like, I'm, I'm not really suited to those kind of long-term projects. I'm very much a contract get in, get out kind of guy. Um, but as I was kind of finally going through that process, uh, I got a call, well, I got an email out of the blue from uh, a recruiter who said, hey, we're you know, really impressed by this research that you've been doing and these articles that you've been writing on Kama Sutra, uh, and we'd really like to talk to you about a position in San Francisco. Uh, would you be open to a, a Skype conversation? And I thought, man, Glasgow versus San Francisco, probably go with San Francisco. Um, so I started uh, the conversation and it turned out that it was Zynga that was recruiting. Um, so they moved me over to take a, a position in the data science team uh, in 2014. Um, 
for various reasons that I kind of moved from data science to product management for data science. Uh, then uh, I ended up uh, kind of leaving data science for about 18 months and actually working on uh, a really small internal team at Zynga that was effectively like an indie team uh, inside of a corporate environment, which was a really interesting experience. But we started up uh, three concepts, we killed two of them, and then the third one uh, is still in production now, but as it got to pre-pro, like my skill set is such that I'm either deep on the AI or I'm very broad and generalist. Um, so I can either kind of cover, um, you know, I, I can be a PM, I can be an engineer, I can be a designer. You will find better people for all of those roles. But at the same time, like I, if you need somebody who can change hats on a daily basis, then I'm your guy. Uh, but when you get to pre-pro, uh, these games kind of start to inflate and the team got to about 30 or 40 people. And it became clear that the generalist role wasn't something that was needed. And that's when I kind of moved back to the data science team, uh, took a step up to be principal data scientist for Zynga, uh, which involved kind of leading a, a lot of kind of AI and data projects. Um, and then about, uh, about a, coming up on I don't know, nine months or something like that, 10 months, uh, I actually transitioned to leading, uh, effectively leading the data innovation team, uh, which is central and strategic analytics, we call it. But the way that I look at my mandate is, um, you know, Zynga kind of needs to catch up in, in a few ways on some tech stack things. Um, it turns out that when you've been doing, you know, when you're on the cutting edge 10 years ago, you've accrued a lot of tech debt. And as a result of that, you know, one of the, my roles is kind of figuring out on the data and analytics side, how to repay that tech debt as quick as we can. And then looking ahead to the, the technologies that we ought to be investing in, in terms of like, where are we going to be maybe five or, or four or five years from now? How can we get there in two or three? Um, so I've got uh, a team of uh, about eight people now under me, uh, and we're all kind of uh, pushing really hard on driving that innovation. Um, so that's my story. Uh, you know, I'm still running the foundation. We've, we've kind of grown the foundation from a, a very small organization that was uh, our annual budget in 20, uh, 2014 when I took over was about one and a half thousand. Uh, in 2018, our annual budget is closer to about 800,000. Uh, so we've grown significantly. We've been able to bring uh, Jen McLean in as uh, our managing director, and she's now uh, executive director of the IGDA as well. Um, you know, she, she sat on our board of directors, uh, or sorry, board of trustees at the foundation. And when it became clear that we needed the support, Jen transitioned into, into a staff role, and that was a real level up moment for us. Um, so yeah, so that is who I am. That is what I've been doing. Uh, I guess, Ian, where do you want to go from here? All right, that was a great introduction. Not quite half an hour, like you said it was going to be, but still ten okay, minutes. Okay, sorry. I, I, I mean, I can do, I can do a longer, I can deep dive on some of those things, but I figured it's and ask me anything, so I should kind of cut it short and get to the questions as quick as I could. Uh, yeah, we're uh, just going to get started with just stuff. Um, so one of the first questions I sort of wanted to ask. Uh, so you mentioned that you. Uh, were director of the IGDA Foundation. Um, and you mentioned that they sort of take care of the scholarships for IGDA. And I figure uh -huh. since this is a group for our students for IGDA, we should learn, uh, we should ask about that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and uh, well seized on a seed I was planting there. Um, 
so uh, so if you're not familiar with the, the scholarship program, and I, I would guess at least one person who's listening to this isn't, um, effectively this, this program, it's been around since, uh, I want to say 2001, so this is its 17th year. It started with the IGDA, it's transitioned to the foundation. Um, the idea is basically that um, for, we, we frame it as the best and brightest students, but it's obviously like one of the the core things, and this is something that as a student, I never internalized, you know, it's the best and brightest of who applies. Um, so if you're not applying, you can't be considered. And the worst we can say is no. Um, the, the trick to it, the, the, the thing about this scholarship is that we, um, we get promising students and we bring them to a conference. Uh, so the conferences that we are uh, running scholarships at right now are uh, GDC and Melbourne International Games Week. Um, I believe those are the only two. Uh, we used to do E3, but we kind of weren't feeling like it was delivering a, an appropriate um, experience. Uh, we used to do uh, some casual connect stuff. We, we've kind of wanted to scale back and kind of build what we see as um, a transformative moment, like career changing kind of uh, experiences for people. So that meant doing less, uh, do, doing more at fewer events. I yes, guess. rather um, than going to every event, you have a really good experience at a few events. Exactly. Um, so uh, you get a mentor assigned to you that's, uh, we do our best. I mean, it can't always be, be the way, but we do our best to make sure that you have a a mentor who not only kind of uh, aligns with your background, but also aligns with your aspirations. Um, so somebody who can actually be uh, a guiding voice for you in terms of, not just in terms of like uh, career stuff, but also how to maximize your uh, usage of the conference. Um, we uh, put together kind of Q&A sessions with senior figures. Um, so uh, Rami Ishmael has, uh, done kind of uh, one of these um, Q&A sessions. Uh, I believe Mike Biffle has done one. Uh, we got Ed Fries, who uh, is uh, on the board of trustees for the foundation, but uh, more famously known as uh, a former VP at Microsoft, who uh, used to kind of, he, he was one of the guys who really initiated the Xbox uh, as a thing at Microsoft. Um, and these are people who, as a student, maybe you wouldn't get to really interact with. Uh, I guess now that the student thing is doing these kinds of events, that's less true. Uh, but the intimate setting of like 10 to 20 people inside a room, all getting to interact and ask questions with a senior figure is actually like, it's something that we feel is very valuable. And I certainly got a lot out of it. In fact, it's the, the my first interaction with Jen was at, at, in that kind of setting uh, back at Casual Connect 2012. Um, the... Uh, we, we so we've got the mentors, we've got the Q and A. Uh, we try our very best to line up uh, studio tours so that you can actually get in and get a feel for what kind of uh, the work environment is like. So uh, for GDC, um, we uh, visit Zynga, uh, obviously because we've got a pretty solid connection there, um, and we also visit Double Fine. So you get this kind of contrast of um, you know big kind of AAA mobile kind of uh, view of how things work 
as well as kind of the the more kind of uh, uh, very kind of high performing indie. So you get kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, and you get to kind of see uh, different aspects of things from that angle. Um, and other than that, we also kind of make sure to to uh, have um, uh, demo showcase. So if you want to show your work, you can uh, at many of these events. Um, but also just the idea of bringing together, you know, a cohort of some of the best students in the in, in literally in the world, puts us in a position where um, we are kind of sparking some amazing partnerships. Uh, and I, I, you know, I I kind of feel that one very strongly because some of the people who I came through those uh, scholarship programs with have been my closest collaborators. They've been uh, my best friends, and we're going through very similar experiences on our career trajectory. So, um, you know, there are there are a number of things that we kind of uh, provide for this. Obviously, we provide the the conference pass. Uh, in recent years, we because of our in increase in funding, we've also been able to provide uh, travels. So we actually will cover. Um, we can't always cover a hundred percent of travel costs, but but that's the aspiration and. It, one of the things that we've been very sensitive to as we've grown this program is um, making sure that it is inclusive, making sure that it is open to anybody. And, you know, there, there are so many different dimensions on which you can measure diversity. Uh, you know, the obvious ones are obviously gender, race, uh, and orientation, but even discipline. It would be really easy to um, flood a program like this with, uh, like, designers and, and programmers and call it good. But, you know, there are so many more disciplines out there. Um, there are so many more geographies to bring people from. So, you know, we want to, uh, when we see, uh, we had somebody from Nigeria, we had somebody from South Africa. Um, unfortunately, we, we had some applicants uh, who uh, were successfully accepted into the program and were unable to attend uh, because of visa issues uh, from Iran. You know, uh, and that's also kind of uh, an angle of diversity. But, uh, you know, one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is, is kind of socioeconomic background. San Francisco, coming to San Francisco for a week is fucking expensive. You know, hotels for GDC are crazy expensive. Even being able to fly to San Francisco is, you know, some level of privilege. So one of the things that's been very important to us is trying to make sure that we address those issues as well by kind of taking that burden away by being able to provide some travel money. Um, so that's what the scholarship entails. Uh, we're now running three programs like this. The original is the IGDA Scholars, uh, like I say, 17 year history. Um, we spun that out into a second program, uh, which has had a, a couple of names over the years, but is now the Women in Games Ambassadors. Uh, and this is specifically focused at women who are kind of transitioning from school into uh, their first kind of industry role and helping them kind of uh, make that transition. You know, there is clearly um, a problem in terms of uh, acquisition and retention of, of female talent. And that is something that we're trying to address with that. And then the third program is the IGDA uh, Foundation Next Gen Leaders. And this kind of is kind of iterating on this kind of idea. Um, so the Next Gen Leaders is actually established for existing professionals within the industry. 
Uh, so we're aiming at, at kind of underrepresented people in the three to five year kind of career path and helping them uh, both kind of maybe transition into their next role. Um, so one of the, the, the things that we've discovered through the developer satisfaction survey that the IGDA runs is that there is a massive kind of churn point at the kind of somewhere between that three to five year um, career point. People tend to leave the industry after three to five years. And there's a range of reasons for that. You know, uh, workplace conditions is obviously something that uh, gets talked about a lot. But when you've got a churn point like that, and you've already got kind of issues around diversity, um, what you're going to find is that you get like a, a compound disinterest, I guess, uh, factor where like, you know, you're picking a fraction of uh, diverse candidates at the top of the funnel. And then at this point where you kind of have to go through a career kind of transition and move from role to role, you get stung again where like you now it's not just 5% or whatever the number is, it's 5% of 5% that are getting through the gate at that point. Um, so the, the next gen leaders is kind of trying to address that issue. So the way that we kind of see things holistically at the foundation is that these programs provide almost like a, an end to end patch on the funnel and clearly we're not done yet. Um, but there is a pipeline problem throughout the industry in terms of retention. There's a, you know, it's not as simple as get more diverse people into uh, schools, which is one thing that kind of gets thrown around, you know, having really diverse uh, student population doesn't help if the next gate and then the subsequent gate and then the subsequent gate are all kind of systemically biased. So what we're trying to do is address that in a, in a more holistic way. So every one of those programs comes uh, with travel support. Uh, every one of them we're trying to uh, get to be a very kind of uh, individual but kind of along the same lines kind of experience. So there's specific goals for each of those programs related to where we see them fitting into the funnel. So the, the scholars program is more for, um, uh, it's open to anybody who is a student. Uh, typically with the criteria that we have, that's going to tend to skew more to the senior level. Uh, you know, the, the kind of senior undergrad slash postgrad kind of uh, student is going gonna, is gonna to kind of be the ones who can tick the boxes there, just in terms of uh, what we're looking for in terms of kind of established track record, established kind of um, volunteerism, kind of having made an impact on the industry already to establish that that credo of best and brightest um subsequent to that if you as you transition into your first role like we're, we're supporting kind of uh the the with the women in games ambassadors we're supporting that piece and then as you kind of take your next step in your next role we've got the next gen leaders and like i say clearly we're not done clearly that's not you know we can't just say mission accomplished at that point but that's why we have these three different programs and kind of uh held together hello hey, man. hey that, was, that was pretty good run <laughs> pretty good explanation uh so ian i will let you kind of drive the questions going forward because i don't want to ask a bunch of repetitive questions that you've already asked we, ha we haven't asked uh, too many questions. Uh, he mostly spent most time introducing himself. But uh, to continue, uh, could you sort of describe 
what your experience was on the IGDA Board of Directors? Um, sure. I mean, um, it was a, it was interesting in a, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I know was it. So this would have been thirteen to sixteen. Uh, that would have been my tenure there. Um, and, uh, so like I said, I came in as the first kind of person, uh, from outside North America. Um, a lot of that was a, as a result of the kind of being a chapter lead, uh, engaging with other chapter leads, and then, uh, having been able to, um, kind of go out and do lecturing about game AI and using those kind of chapter connections to, um, put together what, what I called the Game AI World Tour, which um, it took me down to Chile, uh, it took me to London, it took me to Boston, where I got to speak at the, so uh, at the, the uh, Boston Postmortem, uh, which is the IGDA Boston, effectively. Uh, took me to Seattle, and then it took me across to Norway. So um, effectively, it was kind of, uh, I think it was something crazy, like, I, I forget the exact numbers, but it was three continents, four countries, 12 talks in three weeks, something like that. Um, so that got me a lot of exposure in terms of kind of who I was, what I was doing, uh, meeting chapter leaders, but also meeting kind of uh, individual members of the IGDA. Um, so joining the IGDA board of directors uh, was something that I hadn't intended to do, but all the chapter leaders said I, I, I should run for election. Uh, and uh, foolishly I did um, and like I say because of that kind of engagement with uh, the, the, the broader IGDA community uh, that was kind of the, the tipping point that allowed me as a, as a non-American person to actually get over the hump for the first time. Uh, the, the experience there I mean at this point I would have been uh, 29 I guess uh, and I, I wasn't the youngest person to ever serve on that board uh, but I'm certainly, uh, at that time, I was the youngest person on the board. Um, I was the, the most junior in terms of industry credibility. Uh, I was certainly the most inexperienced at kind of um, being nice to people, I guess. Um, but, I mean, the, the board of directors at that time was a, a really... Um, welcoming place they they kind of made space for me they kind of uh, helped me contribute in a in a lot of ways um that you know in, in a in a lot of ways i'm really grateful to them because they really had no reason to do that um i mean other than respecting the will of the voters and blah blah blah, blah. but the, the point being that like you know I, i've been fortunate throughout my career to date in that like i get taken more seriously than really my tenure in the industry ought to kind of um, suggest. The the board of directors is it? That sounds a little bit like imposter syndrome. Um, <laughs> but so, I, I understand the point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it to an extent, it, it probably is imposter syndrome in as much as like you know, it, it wouldn't. There would be no. I wouldn't keep kind of transitioning upwards hope you would hope you'd hope that i wouldn't keep transitioning upwards if it wasn't uh seen that i was doing a good job but at the same time like realistically looking back now five years 
uh, in the future, I kind of had no business being on that board, I would say. It worked out, uh, but uh, it, it was um, it was very much a, an opportunity to grow significantly and very quickly in terms of the amount of leveling up that needed to be done. Um, it's it was it, like I say it was a, it was a real interesting insight into how um, how the organization runs that from the outside you kind of ne don't necessarily get to see. Um, you know, the, particularly when you kind of hang out too long listening to public uh, opinion about the IGDA on Twitter, there is this sense that the IGDA is this single organization that is doing this thing. Um, and uh, the entire board of directors is there for uh, personal benefit. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's very easy to misconstrue what this organization is and how it runs. You know, everybody is there because they want to do good work for the industry. They feel passionately about this industry and they want to give back. Uh, everybody kind of maybe has different ideas about that, what that looks like. But one of the key things about being on the board of directors that certainly in 2013, I came in with a, with a sense that this was how, this was the next step up in terms of volunteerism. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of run the scholarships for a bit. I was uh, chapter lead of Scotland. Um, so it kind of made sense that the next step in that volunteer path was board of directors. And that turns out that it's not true at all. Um, you know, the IGDA has a man an executive director. It has a director of operations who has uh, just joined the, the voice chat here. So hi, Tristan. <laughs> um, and the execution of the IGDA lies with staff. Um, and that was something that as I joined the board, I didn't really understand. So coming through that election process and making these kind of, so part of that process was writing this, uh, this campaign statement about like, this is what I would do if I got elected to the board of directors. And then I turned up on the board of directors and went, oh, a director of this organization does none of these things. Um, you know, maybe I get, to have an opinion about them, maybe I get to to raise them as a as a uh, conversation that the board has in terms of maybe the direction of the org. But at the same time, the execution of all things kind of lies with staff. And one of the things that you know, it, it sort of it, it was a, a growing process, and it, I eventually kind of got to uh, eventually was individual board members kind of have no authority, which is. It sounds counterintuitive, but the board as a whole has authority. Individuals don't. And individuals kind of helping out are subordinate to staff who are executing the vision of the directors as a whole. Um, and getting to that understanding was a, a really good clarification for me. Um, but it's important to understand that what that means is that the board of directors sets the vision. They set the direction. You know, they are literally directors, so direction is their thing. Um, but that means that you need, uh, I believe the IGDA board is nine people right now, and nine people voting on a direction means that you're generally going to get something that is, um, you know, it's not necessarily, it, it's a political process. Um, 
you have to make compromises. You have to make sure that everybody kind of, not necessarily everybody, everybody, but that there's consensus around what we're going to do, how we're going to operate, what are, what are we going to stand for? Um, and with a, with a kind of, as the board transitions, and the board used to transition a lot faster than it does today, uh, largely because of the, the challenges that there were uh, prior to maybe last year or, or maybe 2016, um, you know, that, that can lead to a very um, disjointed direction. Uh, and it, it's, it's been really interesting for me to kind of, to go through that process, to, to understand more about how governance is done. Um, because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's allowed me to level up in leadership in a, in a way that has allowed me to transition into a role at Zynga that is very much kind of, uh, maybe not exactly the same in as much as I'm, I'm leading my team. I don't really need to establish consensus around that. But at the same time, there needs to be consensus built with my partners in terms of what we're going to do. Um, and I think that, that it's easy to see the board as either this kind of faceless organization that kind of uh, disappears off and does, does something for reasons that are TBD or, or at least opaque, or to see the board as you know, an aspiration of, well, I work really hard for this organization, therefore, the board is strategic. The board needs to be thinking at a very high level. Um, it needs to be thinking about the future. It needs to be thinking about the goals. It needs to be thinking about where it goes. But the day-to-day -day has to live with staff. Uh, and that is, that's a clarification that I think gets made very infrequently. And as a result, there's often misconception about that board. Interesting, interesting. I don't know if that gives you the insight that you were looking for with the question. Uh, but uh, yeah. No, that, that sounds reasonable. Um, it sounds like there's a level of leadership skills that you got to like really learn that you didn't get a chance to learn elsewhere. Uh, but they were, because you hadn't been exposed to them to that kind of setting before, you, you were a little surprised. It also sounds like there was a little bit of a opportunity for, I guess, like just to help people understand the board better. Like even people running in board elections had trouble understanding uh, its place. I think that I think that the IGDA does a, a much better job of that today. Um, you know, in 2013, I think that that was very true. Um, the, yeah. There's been kind of a, a process iteration there, um, you know, partly because of the challenges that I'm describing, because, you know, some of this is stuff, some of this is stuff that kind of, it's not necessarily my reflection on, it's kind of, uh, con you know, a, a con the outcome of a conversation of the board at the time, or at least, at least members of the board. So, you know, it's, the nice thing about the IGDA board is that uh, you get some very smart people who are very experienced uh, kind of working for the good of the industry. Um, but yeah, like, like you say, I mean, there the, the needed to be a process iteration and unfortunately there was. So uh, we're in, as an organization, I feel like they're, they're in a much better place today than maybe three or four years ago. Uh, in my personal experience, uh, you were mentioning before how all of the sort of day-to-day -day stuff is run by staff. Um, I know my personal experience with the IGDA has primarily been through 
my local IGDA chapter and this group. Like, even as an admin of this group, I don't know that much about the IGDA or the board of directors or the so that, I mean, that's a really good point. And that, that's something that, that uh, I'm glad you called out because uh, when I say that the IGDA is run by staff, uh, that's, that's only a piece of the puzzle. I, at the, the kind of high level global kind of level, that's true. But it, it's important to recognize the extent to which the IGDA is powered by volunteers. Um, so people like, well, Livio and, and Ian, you know, the student SIG would not be doing this Ask Me Anything right now without the, them volunteering their time. Uh, you know, every SIG, every chapter is run by volunteers. Um, but kind of when you think of the pyramid, the next step above that would be somebody like a Tristan. The next step above that is a, is a Jen. And then above Jen is the collective board of directors. Um, sorry, yeah. I, I cut you off to kind of reinforce the point. So uh, no, no, sorry, no that, you, you basically covered what I was going to get at. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, the, like, I, I think a lot of, especially lately, uh, I feel like I've been seeing the IGDA uh, present itself more as a volunteer run organization, like to just to remind people that that's the case. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, but then I, like, I guess, like, we're always so busy doing stuff that we often forget to, like, remind, like, re-explain every single thing, right? Uh, and I guess the same thing is true for a lot of teams and a lot of companies where, like, when I joined Microsoft, there was a huge period where, like, people try to onboard you, but there's also so much stuff that just gets dropped and you slowly absorb over the time that you're working with the org. Uh, and absolutely that, that seems to be the case with a lot of this stuff like just explaining the structure of the organization and being like yes these are the different components that we have to work with here uh, and even just explaining like in detail the nature of each of those pieces like the board the staff the volunteers etc yeah i mean i think in any organization documentation is probably one of the things that tends to fall through the cracks. Um, certainly that's, it's true in, in my sort of Zynga team, it's true in my personal life, and it, it was true of my IGDA life. Um, that sounds like a know, good we, thing to, I guess, think about going forward is we have the about page on the website, uh, which just like gives the first intro to like what this group even is. But it, there seems to be an opportunity to have a volunteer facing about page or something like that. That's like, hey, just so you know, these are the various resources, avail resources available to you. And ideally, we, we kind of have, we like in, in the ideal world, whoever the volunteers, the new volunteers are working with, either past volunteers, like chapter leaders, SIG leaders, or even just working directly with staff to get onboarded. Ideally, that would get ironed out, and it often does, but there's also a lot of places where, like, for example, like <laughs> uh, Ian still hasn't uh, learned too much of, like, like, a lot of the things you mentioned today is the first time Ian's hearing about it, despite the fact that I've been working with him for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem. Um... 
you know, back in back in 2013, and to be honest, I'm a, I'm a lot more removed from the day-to-day of the IGDA itself these days. Um, you know, as my role at Zynga has, as I've transitioned from kind of grad student who's looking for things to actively distract me from having to work into kind of a role at Zynga that was demanding into like leadership at Zynga that's kind of taking quite a bit of my time. Um, my, my, my attention to the IGDA has diminished and I've kind of, uh, to say that I've doubled down on the foundation would be incorrect. I've kind of had to elevate myself from the foundation as well, but I've got a, a lot less insight into the IGDA is my point. Um, but in 2013, a significant amount of um, knowledge propagation was literally word of mouth. It, it, it was kind of um, uh, what's kind of within information theory, I think is referred to as like tribal knowledge getting passed down kind of from the elders to the to the new generation. And that was happening at the volunteers level as well, even in, in, at the kind of chapter leader level. As a new chapter leader coming in, I was kind of being shown how to be a chapter leader by the ones who were going before me. Um, and in some cases, you know, that, that is also a way to propagate bad behavior and, and misconceptions. Um, you know, being able to write things down and actually agree on, on what, what this is and where it's going is very powerful. Um, and I know that there's been uh, efforts through the, through the years that I think have actually now culminated in a chapter handbook. Um, yeah, yeah, but, we have one now. But that is you know, that generally is chapter leadership facing. Uh, so I, I think that your point about kind of, you know, it, it, one of the things that, and this is something that, that I've been increasingly coming to terms with, uh, as, a, as a young, angry, uh, radical, changing the world kind of person, I wanted to do all the things. Uh, why is this not done? Why is that not done? Why, why are all these things not done? And the, the answer, as I've kind of mellowed and kind of seen how the world actually works is there are only so many hours in the day. Uh, you have to stack rank every damn thing that you want to achieve. And some of these things are just not worth killing yourself over. Um, you know, burnout is a real thing and it's as real at an org level at a, at a volunteer level as it is at a work level, you know, volunteering, doesn't get categorized as like work work but it is you know it's still effort it's still hard and it's still something that some days you just want to sit and stare at youtube for the day like because you you know it's saturday you've had enough and writing you know writing an onboarding doc for volunteers it, it is a probably a p2 on the list and it you know people get to a point where if there's no P0s, then I'm going to stay in bed. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. You know, being able to intentionally say, here are the things that we want to get done. Here are the things that we're going to get done. Here is the priority on these things. And here are like, for the things that actually need deadlines, here are the deadlines. And then you can actively disengage when you, when you're done, because if you don't, if you don't have that kind of stack ranking if you're trying to do everything all the time you just drive yourself crazy 
that's the essential struggle of volunteering in a nutshell. <laughs> it, it is. And it, to be honest, like, it's a struggle that, that I still face at Zynga. Um, you know, there are so many things that I want to achieve with my team at Zynga. Like, I don't push my team in the way that I push myself. Because, um, you know, I, I am very protective of their work-life balance. At the same time, for myself, you know, if, if I've been in meetings all day, then that means that at six o'clock I need to sit down and start doing some work. And there are, there are, there are days when that's the way it goes. But I'm, I'm having to get better about remembering that the work will still be there tomorrow. If it doesn't actually need to get done tonight, maybe it's time to go home and get dinner. You know, maybe it's time to go turn some music on instead. Um, and I think, you know, finding that balance point is really important, you know. Um, and it's... You know, we would love to live in a world where, you know, crunch is not a thing. And, and we, we should aspire to that. A world with <laughs> infinite time and infinite resources. Well, exactly. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And at the end of the day, you know, crunch generally happens at game studios for, for a number of reasons. But it comes down to kind of mismanaged expectations with senior leadership, kind of bad project management and maybe trying to do something that is actually out of scope for, for your resource. Um, but that's not, so institutional crutch, you know, seven days a week for the next six months is obviously completely untenable. Uh, <laughs> but there are some days where shit, you're staying late because you've got a, a big presentation in the morning and you've got to be ready for it. And I think one thing that, that we need to be conscious of, I'm going off on a crunch rant that can only get me uh -huh. into trouble. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, but one thing that we need to be conscious of is that deadlines exist. Um, you know, when, when the entire team is having to kill themselves to meet a deadline, then somebody screwed up somewhere. That said, we're never going to live in a world where, you know, and no industry exists in a world where, hey, you're going what we end up with is probably a decent you know it's not going to be uh lazy it's going to be full for the quarter but it doesn't turn into anything insane and that's yeah that's the big thing and there's so many things like around planning that where 
you just kind of even your idea of 80% might actually be 100% in reality. Uh, but we as people are just bad at me at keeping things within their scope. <laughs> yeah, and, and th this is the third time my team is going through this exercise. Um, the first time we, we horribly underestimated a lot of things. Um, you know, uh, oh yeah, we should be able to do that in like five days. And it actually turns out that it was 20. Um, it's, it's so interesting because like as, as students work on their little side projects, they running into the same exact problems and it's not much different when you're in a big company, like you're still having the struggle to estimate things properly and plan your time properly. Exactly. But I mean, one of the things that I think is, um, certainly for for my experience is like when i'm working on a side project if i get the estimate wrong i don't actually get held accountable for the original estimate uh so i yes i i, I got uh, you know this turned out to be a bigger job than i thought it was but there's not really that kind of closing the loop teachable moment that says mm. i have to get better at this turns out that when you're on a whole bunch of angry email threads with people who expected that you were going to do a thing and you're not able to give it to them, and that now derails five engineers on a game team. <laughs> that turns into a teachable moment right there. Because uh, you're not going to do that shit again. Well, you probably are. Um, so what else, do you, what else happens in, in your job at Zynga? So like, what's your typical, I don't know if you've asked this before I came online, but like, what's your typical day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week, like? So, I, it varies drastically. Um, uh, my my team is a little bit unique. Um, so I, I talked kind of very briefly in my intro about how it's kind of uh, very focused on innovation. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, um, I kind of don't have a typical week. Uh, there's kind of, there's, there's effectively two, two or three modes that I operate in. Um, one is kind of being the team manager, and that's uh, what this week has been, where, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of projects in flight. I'm having a lot of meetings with stakeholders to kind of uh, make sure that we're aligned in terms of what's happening, but also uh, hand things off or pick up new requirements, um, kind of making sure that everything's uh, flowing nicely. Um, I still kind of try to get my hands dirty as much as I can. Um, one of the reasons for that is um, my style of leadership very much is that um, my authority comes from being, I, I want my authority to come from the people that I lead. Uh, I, I'm very much a, a lead from the front kind of person. Um, as a result of that, like I want to occasionally prove to my team that I've still got the ability to do things. Um, and frankly, for some jobs that my team occasionally has to kind of pick up, I'm actually the, mo the most capable of the whole team and I can get it done a lot faster than other people would get it done. Uh, so there, there, are, there are kind of management aspects to it in terms of kind of, uh, in terms of the team, but there's also a lot of kind of uh, individual contributor work. So, uh, mm -hmm kind of the, the, the role that I see myself in is kind of effectively, I'm the chief technology officer for the data division. Um, so I do a lot of kind of 
forward thinking, where do we need to be? How can we kind of build out this architecture in a way that makes sense in terms of future planning? So I carry a notebook around in my pocket uh, that has like sketches of like architecture diagrams and uh, database schemas and stuff like that. That's kind of helping me to articulate things to my team, but also helping me to work things through. Uh, and then uh, there are just a number of projects. So uh, I report to the GM of analytics um, and he reports to the chief operating officer. That puts us in a role where there are, there are a number of times where there's some odd company kind of priority, P0 for the company, drop everything and come and do this. Um, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we announced the acquisition of Get Gram Games in uh, Istanbul. Uh, so Gram Games makes uh, Merge Dragons uh, and Merge Town and a few other games. Mm. Um, so uh, I basically got an email, had to drop everything and spend two days with those guys uh, talking about their infrastructure and their data. Um, we, uh, so as part of an acquisition like that, uh, there's this process called due diligence. And due diligence is basically like, um, when you have an intention to buy a company, you effectively start doing research. Or you, you kind of get an agreement in place with that company that, hey, we want to buy you and you want us to buy you. So we're gonna agree that we're gonna kind of get into your operation and kind of figure out what's happening to get a better sense of making sure that this is a good deal. And part of that involves digging into their data and making sure that like the number of users uh, that they're getting actually aligns with what we, what we think and also what they're telling us, uh, trying to get a sense for what their revenue looks like, trying to get a sense for just from a data perspective, what their business actually looks like. Um, <laughs> and that really that's, was that's a, I mean, it was really interesting, but it really was a, okay, drop everything, you're doing this for the next week kind of moment. Um, and those so, come up from time to time. So like, look, this is why there's kind of no standard kind of week for me. Yeah, so the, the reason I thought that was interesting was because right now in startup culture, there's this whole thing about acquisitions, get acquired as the exit of your company, blah, blah, blah met people who started companies and their main plan is to just get acquired as opposed to building a real org um, i mean it's the way forwards i mean yeah yeah well, and it's true it's but but that mindset one drawback of that like being too laser focused about that is i've, I've met people who when they make decisions they deprioritize actual long-term stuff like or even uh, it starts to, they brush up against certain ethical guidelines that I wouldn't cross, where they make themselves look much better than they actually are. And they still think they can, that they're acquisition worthy. And I'm like, well, that due diligence stuff sounds like uh, a counterpoint to that. Like, well, it, it absolutely is. Real. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, startup culture, particularly in SF and Silicon Valley is, um, you know, that initial seed funding, that, that kind of VC support that you get to get going. The trick is almost to burn that money as quick as you can, um, in order to grow as fast as you can. And in some cases, you know, some businesses are not necessarily showing profit before they're, they're exiting. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, I I forget where I read this, but um, it somebody re related effectively uh, profitability to Schrodinger's cat. While ever while ever you're kind of not actually making a profit, not trying to make a profit, then you could make a huge amount of profit or you could make a, a little amount of profit. If you can convince somebody that you're going to make a huge, you know, that Schrodinger's cat is alive and sell the box to them, then that is like a really good move as a startup thing, rather mm -hmm. than opening the box, figuring out whether the cat's alive or dead and selling the opened box. I, you know, I, I think the word that you used was, was uh, ethical considerations. <laughs> I think that that is absolutely uh, a, a real thing. And it's, it's frustrating to me. Um, you know, there was a cleaning service and, you know, a domestic cleaning service that was um, working in my building, in my apartment building. Uh, and they were doing uh, hotel style cleaning was the way that they framed it. And uh, they would send somebody in to do like half an hour cleaning up your apartment five days a week, which, you know, is a brilliant service. But, you know, they were sending the same person on a regular basis. And I ended up kind of, you know, becoming pretty friendly with her and, and you know, talking to her about, you know, how, how things were going with this business. And I did the math and they were paying more for her to come and clean my apartment than I was paying them, which makes mm. no sense at all. And then they went out of business. Yeah, it's also worth reminding people, especially students, that there are other schools of thought about how to run businesses. Like outside of the startup world, there's the whole mindset of grow slowly and steadily. Don't grow too fast yeah. because that'll kill you. Don't grow too slow because that'll kill you. Absolutely. I mean, so yeah. in, in SF, that's referred to as a lifestyle business. Um, <laughs> Which is an insult. It, it, no, it absolutely is because you know what, like, you know, you, I mean, in the current culture, it's easy to get off on a rant about capitalism and I'll try and keep it reasonably constrained. But the, the point being that like, yeah, okay. If you are running a lifestyle business, you're probably never going to become the next Mark Zuckerberg, but like, who cares? Like at the end of the day, if you can kind of provide for your family, if you can kind of do something that you like, and if you're kind of providing uh, jobs and service to the community, that's kind of pretty cool, just as it is. Yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, pride and honor into being able to maintain a business in the long term, rather than trying to do what is essentially a get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah, which is what how I think of the current startup model. And the reason why the current startup model works is because, like you said, there are VCs, a lot of investors, who want to get rich quick as well, and they're like. This is their model for doing that. Invest in a bunch of little small companies, and if one of them blows up, they'll make a big profit. Uh, and that's that's like a weird like if you understand the whole system behind it, it's just like a weird. I don't want to say perversion, more like a mutation um, of the way that people, the way that economy has kind of worked up until now. Yeah. But hey, you know all about the dollar bills apparently <laughs> and yeah so the we're, we're almost out of time uh well we are out of time actually it's 10 02. <laughs> uh i and do you have time for maybe one more question yeah yeah i uh you have to get going 
I, I can probably give you another five-ish minutes. Okay. Uh, so, you, uh, I wanted to ask you more about the, I guess, the data science side of your job. Um, so, you studied, or was it AI in school? Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what, how, do, like, how does that apply with your work? Uh, or if it doesn't, then how does the, how did you get into like the whole data science stuff? Was it just this job? Um, data science. So I, 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 in my intro, I kind of talked about how I, I was wrapping up my PhD and, and Zinga came and approached me about kind of moving to San Francisco. The bit that I didn't cover uh -huh. was, uh, that when, when they did the outreach, uh, it was literally, Hey, we want to talk to you about a, a role as a data scientist. And literally, my response was, what's data science? Um, <laughs> and uh, it turns out <laughs> that data science is um, basically it's AI. Like, so Ooh. AI is a pretty broad um, kind of bucket. Uh, there are various and assorted types of AI from uh, you know. Uh, systems that drive robots through to systems that play chess through to kind of uh, systems that that you will have seen kind of on Twitter generating poetry and shitty poetry, but poetry uh, and uh, and you know cross combining paintings using neural nets and things like that. All of that kind of falls under the bucket of of in broad strokes AI. The way that I look at AI, the way that I define AI is um, it's about uh, computers making algorithmic decisions instead of humans. Um, and to an extent, the quality of those decisions doesn't really kind of infer whether it's good AI. Uh, well, it's, it, it doesn't infer whether it is AI, it's whether it's good AI or bad AI. You know, I could um, write an NPC in a game that just walks into a wall all the time. Uh, now, it, as long as it's making the decision to walk into a wall, that is an artificial intelligence. It's a shitty artificial intelligence, but you know it's it's making a decision without a human intervention. Um, mm -hmm. In the same way, a subfield of of AI is machine learning, uh, which is basically kind of at a very high level, kind of taking a uh, a range of past observations and using those to figure out what might happen next. Um, so it's not quite as simple as, but, uh, think of it as like pattern matching, you know, um, if you sit watching traffic and you see red car, red car, red car, red car, black car, and you are asked to predict what the next color car is going to be. Well, your observation is however many reds I said, plus one black. So chances are based on your observation that the next car is going to be red um that's mm -hmm. effectively what machine learning is at a very kind of abstract nebulous hundred thousand foot view um yeah. so it's effectively finding in in a more nuanced way it's finding patterns in data that are maybe less obvious than the red car black car um so uh you know a a, a regular um, kind of view on this is, uh, or, or one of the easiest things that, that we kind of do is around uh, what we call propensity scoring. Uh, and what we mean by that is like, uh, 
likely to blank, uh, which is a score that we do out on a player level. Um, it's like so, li likely to buy something, like likely to open the app again, et cetera. Yeah, so opening the, so churn is actually that we are most focused on uh, in this kind of space. Um, but but watching ads and kind of uh, other things are definitely in there. Um, so given what we have seen about your behavior, what is the likelihood that we think you are about to leave this game and never come back? Um, and uh, what the way that that works is that we kind of look at our past data and we say, okay, well, these people came back and these people did not come back. Let's find the data commonalities between them in terms of like uh, maybe patterns of behavior or uh, that kind of thing. So somebody who kind of, um, who, a hypothetical example, somebody who comes into the app, kind of clicks around, doesn't really play uh, a game initially, pops open a dialog box, closes it up, um, and then maybe after about 10 minutes, maybe gets into a game. Uh, clearly, they're somebody who is not super highly engaged with this game. And these kinds of algorithms are about detecting those behaviors and kind of saying, okay, this person's at risk of leaving. Um, and the way that we use that is that then we kind of use that for two things. One is kind of business forecasting. Uh, so if uh, the more we understand how many people are going to keep playing, the more we can kind of get a better sense of what the lifetime of this game is going to look like. How much money do we expect it to make? What what would, you know, what what's the uh, appropriate amount of advertising that we could buy in order to kind of promote this game based on what we understand to be the, the expectations in terms of return on that spend. Um, the other thing that we can do with it is we can actually start to intervene at a user level. Um, you know, we can say, hey, you know, we're not quite here yet, but, you know, hey, we, we can see that you're having a bad experience here. Um, you know, why don't we do something that can actually make this better for you? Um, you know, we can see that you're not enjoying this thing uh, for whatever reason. So how about we just kind of tweak things around a bit and give, you know, from from my point of view, the, the power of data science, it, 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 it kind of cuts both ways. Because on the one hand, uh, you often hear these talks at, at conferences like GDC and, and uh, casual connect and, and kind of places like that around, you know, data science as a vector for monetization and kind of as a vector for driving things like sales and, um, you know, prompting users to, hey, why don't, you know, for just, we can see that you're not doing well in this game. So why don't you just give us some more money and then we'll do better. Um, it's got the nuance of hitting somebody in the face with a sock full of pennies. It's, it's not really the way that I think that we could be using this data. Um, you know, the, the things that I want to see us do are actually understand what people are looking for and actually tailor the experience. Because here's the thing for me, like, yes, you can get in people's face and yell at them until they give you money. But if you provide them with the game experience that they actually want, you don't have to yell at somebody to get them to give you money. They'll just give you money. Like, I have a fundamental belief that at, at its core, our, our players want us to succeed. They want our games to continue to exist, and they want new games and new experiences from us. So the trick is to provide them with an experience that actually says, hey, keep funding us. 
help us make the next thing. You know, buy, you know, have the great experience, buy yeah. the extra fucking skins or, you know, give back to <laughs> us so that we can continue to give you great game experiences. The, um, it, it, it sounds like data science, like as a tool, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of let that tool influence your frame of mind a little too much. And so it, it, I like how you keep looking for ways to stay grounded in what the, what's like the player actually wants and make sure you're using that tool to actually find that as opposed to getting yeah, I mean, led down the wrong path. Exactly. And, and a lot of that comes down to like, how you approach data science as a mindset. You know, a lot of the times, because it's kind of data, because it's graphs, and because it's often talking about like revenue numbers, as a result of that, it's treated more as a business proposition. Um, and, you know, you could see a world where that means that it kind of falls within the remit more of uh, business development or uh, marketing in some cases or product management, uh, but very focused on like the bottom line. And the way that I like to think about data science is, you know, yes, there is that side to it, but it's also about experiences. And the more that we can be engaged with game design equally as with kind of um, with the business kind of leaders, the that's where the win state is, is in helping in helping drive those compromises rather than one side or the other.